have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. This morning we're at the halfway point through our series on the minor prophets. Halfway point. Minor, uh, Micah chapter 7. We're going to cover the whole book like typical, but we're just going to read the last three verses of the book together. And I want you to pay especially close attention to that first verse, verse 18. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that just as we have sang, and as just as we will see here in the book of Micah, that your holiness would drive our holiness. That the holiness of our God would shape the holiness of his people. God, the way we treat others would flow from who you are. The way that we follow others would flow from who you are. The way we shape our lives and think of our lives would flow from who you are. The way we we act and interact would flow from who you are. That God, the world would see us and by seeing us, they would glimpse you. God, I pray this morning that you would stir in the hearts of your people. I pray that you would let your spirit fall among us, stir among us, fill us, fill your people, fill me as I deliver your word, fill the congregation as they receive your word. Use your word to open up our eyes, use your word to conform our character, use your word to sanctify us more into the image of Christ. We ask these things now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, uh, Josiah and I were home together on a Friday, and I had made him breakfast and taken care of him, care of him, and gotten him settled in. And he was playing in the floor there in the den with all of his toys and watching, you know, Coco Melon or Fireman Sam or one of those shows that is always in the background. You know what I'm saying? And I had went into the kitchen. I had made some coffee, and uh, I had poured myself a cup of coffee. And I guess, I don't know, I, I was just lost in thought for a second. We have an island there in our kitchen with, with windows that kind of overlook a bird bath or whatever. And I had poured some coffee and I was laid back. My legs were crossed over like this. And I was just leaned against the counter, drinking coffee, looking out the window. Well, out of the corner of my eye, I saw Josiah come into the room, into the kitchen there. And he just looked up at me and then he went back into the den. I didn't think much of it and I didn't, I didn't move. But Josiah came back into the kitchen, and next thing I know, he's got this little bitty toy teacup, right? And he looks up at me like this, and he's examining me, and he leans up against the counter, and he looks at me again, and he crosses over his little legs, and he says, I'm drinking my coffee. <laughs> and he, he went, ah. <laughs> you know, it's a universal principle. We imitate those we admire, don't we? We imitate those that we admire. The Bible actually, though, places this in the context of our relationship with God as the Bible does with all of the principles that we experience in our lives. 
Now, what the Bible says is that not only do we imitate those that we admire, but we become like those that we worship. The psalmist says this in Psalm 115, verse 8. He's talking about idols. And it says, those who make them, that's the idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. That you, if you worship Jesus, you should become like Jesus. But if you worship idols, if you worship success, if you worship prosperity, if you worship wealth, if you worship relationships, if you worship your kids, then that's going to form and shape you into the person that you are just as well. And so the question that's often been, often been before the people of God is, who are you like? Who are you like? Do you look like your God? Do you look like the one that you worship? Which means we can also reverse engineer, right? We can look at our lives and we can examine who we are and we can examine the things that we do. and We can examine the way that we treat other people and we can uh, examine the way that we respond to certain situations. And by seeing how we are, we can reverse engineer and go back and find who or what it is that we're worshiping. Well, this really is at the center of what Micah is saying. You, you remember there at the end of verse seven, or at the end of chapter seven in the passage that I read, verse eighteen says this: "Who is a god like you?" That at the center of the book of Micah is the question: Who is like God? In fact, the translation of the name Micah, Micah, literally means "Who is like Yahweh?" That if you were to ask that question, you would just say Micah, Micah. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? I think what we're supposed to see as we read through the book of Micah is that this question is always at the forefront. This question is always being asked, who is like God? Who is like God? Who is like God? And there are at least three different answers that I think that the book of Micah is meant to provoke in our minds. So first of all, who is like God? Not us. Not us. Not his people. His people do not look like him. If you were to have read Micah chapter 1, it would have been like reading a eulogy. Uh, at the occasion of David and Jonathan's death, David starts off what his, his speech by saying, Tell us not in Gath. Well, if you read Micah chapter 1, Micah plagiarizes David. Micah says, Tell us not in Gath. It's like he's reading a, a eulogy about the people of Judah. He does a wordplay in all of the surrounding cities that are surrounding the region of Judah. And he does a wordplay to help them understand their situation, who they are, and what's ultimately to come if they do not reverse course and move back toward the Lord. He, he would look at a town and he would say, you, O tell town, you will have nothing left to tell. You, O dust town, you will be rolled in the dust. You, beauty town, you will never be beautiful again. And what Micah wants them to understand is that the situation is more dire than they realize they believe that they're like God and that they have the approval of God because they're prospering as the people of God. But the truth is, the truth is, is that they are, they are headed toward death without realizing that their prosperity has deceived them into not understanding that they're dead men and dead women walking, that they have, been, they have cancer, but it's undetected. It's undetected. And so Micah is trying, and he successfully does, actually. Um, that's another story. We see that in the book of Jeremiah. He actually does. He is trying to get the attention of the children of Judah that they would recognize that they are not like the living God. They are not like their Lord. They are not like the one who is high and transcendent and filled with life and eternal and the Alpha and the Omega. They are like the dead idols they've begun to worship. 
And I think by looking at chapters 2 and 3, we can see some diagnostics that can help us re, uh, reverse engineer our lives and reverse engineer what we find and the things that we do and the things that we say and the way that we treat others that actually, actually can help us identify whether or not we are like the Lord, whether or not we are like Christ, whether or not we are, are deceiving ourselves as Judah was. First question I want us to ask ourselves is how do you treat others? How do you treat others? Maybe over the time of our over our time in uh, the minor prophets, you're kind of tired of being asked this. This is a common theme among the minor prophets. We saw this in Amos. We saw this last week in the book of Obadiah, and here it is showing up again in the book of Micah. That front and center of concern for the minor prophets was their treatment of other people, especially their treatment of those that they perhaps considered to be lesser than's, those people who they believed did not deserve a seat at the table, those that could not bring any value to them, and their treatment of the lower class beneath them. Well, this is front and center for them because it begins to help them to identify who it is that they're like. Are they like the Lord or are they like all of these other gods? You see, God, God is compassionate, isn't he? God is filled with mercy, God is patient, God is, God is loving, God is just, he deals with people equitably. God uh, doesn't play favorites with those that can perhaps bring more giftedness or more affluence to the table. God, God deals rightly with, with all peoples. God treats every person, fills every person with the same dignity and the same value. But idols, idols are abusers. Idols are abusers. Idols, you have to walk on eggshells around, about, uh, around idols. You don't know when they're going to erupt. One day they may be good to you. One day they may send the rain that you need. One day they may prosper your household or deliver you from the sickness. But the next day, the next day, they could go completely off the rails and come against you. And you really don't know what to expect. And so you're always left guessing, what do they want today? What do they expect from me today? What do they need from me today? And you're walking on eggshells around the idols, they are abusive to their followers. And so here is Micah, and he's asking them, who are you like? Who are you like? Again, we see here, the reason I read it at the beginning, we see an intersection of the great two commandments, don't we? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do those intersect here in the book of Micah? Well, what we're being reminded of is that the way that you treat others, the way that you love others, the way that you relate to others has something to say about how you love God and which God, in fact, it is that you love. Whether or not you're loving the God who is filled with compassion and mercy and justice and kindness, or if you're filled with a God, if you're loving an idol who is abusive, manipulative, that you have to walk on eggshells around, who is only interested in what you can do for them. For Judah, it was the latter. For Judah, what Micah sees there among the people is that they were, uh, they were sleeping all night long in their beds and they were, they were devising schemes and how they could take advantage of those that were lower than them. They were trying to figure out how they could profit from the, the hard luck of their neighbors. When the morning, duns, they would, the morning dawns, they would perform it. They would go out as quickly as they could to execute these schemes of injustice that they had planned in their minds and they would take advantage and they would steal the land of their neighbors who were in bad luck. They were, would give to them high interest loans and basically rob their neighbor for their own wealth. They were building themselves up at the expense of other people. And what Micah wants them to recognize and realize is that this is evidence that they don't know God. This is evidence that they don't love God. This is the evidence that they don't have the approval of God because they look nothing like him. 
they look nothing like him. Have we ever stopped for just a second to ask why it is that we might treat someone unjustly? To treat someone unjustly is any time you treat any person with less dignity than they deserve as an image bearer of Almighty God. It doesn't mean that you steal from them always. It can mean that. It doesn't mean that you manipulate them always. It, It can mean that. It doesn't mean that you speak harshly to them always. It can mean that. It means any time you look a fellow image bearer in the eye and you don't treat them with the dignity, the respect, and the love that the image of God in them demands from you. That is justice. That is justice. And why would we not do that? Well, let's think about some reasons. Could it be because our favorite political candidate or our favorite political pundit has convinced them that they, whoever they are, is the problem? Paul says our war is not with flesh and blood. Our issue, our conflict is not with flesh and blood. But our politics very often is convincing us that they are the problem. That flesh and blood is the issue. So perhaps we speak with contempt. Could it be that our desire to acquire and to achieve is greater than our desire to love? Could it be that our passion for our own personal freedom has now come into conflict with people that we see as obstacles to them? Untold numbers of parents have soaked their pillows with tears. Untold spouses have been left holding the bag and abandoned. Untold numbers of babies have been aborted, all in the name of personal freedom. All in the name of I want to be able to do what I want to do. All in the name of I want to be able to go where I want to go. All in the name of I don't want to be held back. I want to move forward. All of these brothers and sisters are injustices. And in every case, on every page, what are we seeing? They're revealing idols. They're revealing what we worship. They're revealing what is at the center of our life. What is the foundation of our value system? How do you treat others? But not just how do you treat others. There's a second diagnostic question that we should ask ourselves. Why do you follow others? Why do you follow others? Our leaders reveal something of our values. The leaders that we follow reveal something of our values. Often it's among our leaders that we see the greatest excesses, isn't it? It's often among our leaders that we see perhaps the greatest pictures of greed. It's among our leaders where we see the perhaps the greatest pictures of abuse. But what is being pointed out here for Judah is that our leaders are very often pictures of who we would be if we had their means, their authority, and their power. That what our leaders so often do is they take our societal values and they carry them to their furthest logical conclusion. That they take our societal values and they use them and they extrapolate them forward with money, with influence, with power, without accountability to do what most of us would do. And so our leaders are held up to us here in Micah as a mirror. Look in the mirror. Is this who you are? Look in the mirror. Is this what you support? Look in the mirror. Why are you following them? See, he says here that the leaders of Judah, they were, they were there to give the people what they wanted. And the prophets of Judah were there to tell the people what they wanted to hear. The, the leaders give them what they want to have. The prophets are there to tell them what they want to hear. You'll see there, it says, hear you heads of Jacob, you rulers. So he talks about the rulers first of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Like if anybody ought to know justice, oughtn't it, ought it be the, the civil leadership? But look at what he says. He says their values are backwards. They hate the good and they love the evil. 
That which is evil, they say, that is right. That is good. That is righteous. That is what I enjoy. That which is, that which is good, they say, I hate that. I despise that. It holds me back. It slows me down. I want nothing to do with it. And so what do they do? They tear the skin off from my people, their flesh from their bones. They eat the flesh of my people. They flay their skin from off them. They break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. What's he saying there? That the, that the leaders, that the elite of society, the, the leaders of the world, the elders of, Jeru- of Judah are profiting on the backs of his people. They're profiting from the misfortune of others. That he's looking at the leaders and he's saying their values are corrupted, but you're empowering them and you're following them and you're not holding them to account. Why? Because they are prospering you. That the only value that had settled in Judah to determine whether a leader was worth following was whether or not he could increase their retirement accounts. The only way that a leader was determined whether or not he was worth following was whether or not he could put more money in the coffers, that he could increase the treasury. And God says, this is nothing like me. This is nothing like me. The prophets he addresses next. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, peace. This is a common, this actually goes all the way through Micah. We could see a number of things that he says about the prophets. But here's the point. They were gathering themselves prophets who were for sale. They were gathering themselves prophets who they could pay off to say what they wanted to hear. Prophets who wouldn't tell them the truth about God. Prophets who would never confront them in their sins. But prophets instead who would pat them on the back and whisper peace to them. All is okay. Your best life is in front of you. Your sin is justified. Your, ins- your, your shortcomings are fine. Your distance from God is not an issue. That they were, as Paul would say, collecting for themselves preachers that would tickle their ears. So what does God say? You who are following corrupt leaders, you who, whose only value is can they make me more money, you who are collecting yourself preachers and prophets that will take you what you want to hear, here's what I'll do for you. The darkest judgment in all of the scriptures is when God gives to people exactly what they want. And what do they want? They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. They wanted to have what they wanted to have. And so God says, verse 4, I will not answer them. Verse 7, the seers shall be disgraced. The diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. God says, you want to collect for yourself preachers that will just tell you that your sin is fine. You want to collect for yourself leaders that will lead you further and further into idolatry. You won't hear a peep out of me. If you don't want to hear from the word of God, if you don't want to hear from the prophets of God, if you don't want to hear from the spirit of God, then I will go silent. And I'll turn you over to your own debauchery. See, the point is what he says in chapter 2, verse 7. This is God looking to his people. And he says, should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Is this who I am? When I look at my people, I don't see me. When I look at my people, I don't see my character. When I look at my people, I don't see my justice. When I look at my people, I don't see my compassion. When I look at my people, I don't see my humility. When I look at my people, they look nothing like me. Brothers and sisters, who do we look like? Who do we look like? Do we look more like our favorite political candidate than we do like Jesus? Who do we look like? 
Do we look more like the co-workers and classmates that we covet than we do like Jesus? Who is like God? Not us. Not us. Second way that same question is supposed to be answered throughout the book of Micah. Who is like God? No one. No one is like God. They keep chasing after all these other gods, chasing after all these other idols, thinking they can offer something more. But what Micah wants them to be sure to know is that none of them are like the Lord. None of them are like the Lord. When I was a a kid, I loved to collect baseball cards. It was a huge thing for me. And I remember one time, I guess it would have been my birthday, my grandmother takes me to the baseball card shop they used to have over there in Jacksonville by the subway. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You go over there, and, and she takes me in, and she says, I mean, it is one of the highlight statements of my childhood. Cody, any cards you want in the store, I'm going to buy it for you. Okay, so I, and hours, if, if you know anything about me, you know I'm an obsessive researcher, okay? And I, I'm the kind of guy at Washington, D.C. that they have to close down, turn off the lights at the Holocaust Museum because I'm reading every single plaque, right? So, man, I'm going patiently through every single card and, and combing over all that I want. Well, I came across the card, the card. Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card that had been sealed inside of a plaque, okay, and at the time, there was no baseball player I ever heard of, ever saw, ever knew anything about that was greater than Ken Griffey Jr. Well, a few weeks later, uh, my, I have a friend that comes over, came, came over to the house, and he collected baseball cards, too, and you know how kids do, they trade the cards, they, you know, you're getting them all out, and you're doing the, doing the thing, and so he has them, and he has what I think is the only card that may be greater than the King Griffey Jr. rookie card, he has a Babe Ruth card. This is the holy grail for a baseball card collector, a Babe Ruth black and white, I mean, like, out of the gum pack type card, and I just see nothing but stars, Right? Like, I would have given him anything to my 10-year-old name at that point in life for that Babe Ruth card. And the only thing that he required from me was the King Griffey Jr. rookie card. This is a slam dunk. I love the King Griffey Jr. card, but he ain't Babe Ruth, right? He is not the big Bambino. So I make the trade. I am on cloud nine. I am so excited. Okay, and used to, I don't know if you still do this or not, used to you'd go get the Beckett magazines. Do you remember that? And you could do the, the, the valuation. You could see what the card was worth. And I had just stacks. of. I, every time there was a new one that came out, I got the Beckett magazine, right? And so I, my, my buddy goes home, and I get out my Beckett magazine, and I'm, I'm looking up the card, and I realize something. It's a replica. It's a replica. It's not the real card. It was a, something that they had made years and years and years and years later just to kind of signify and memorialize what Babe Ruth had done. And it was worthless. This week I looked up that King Griffey Jr. rookie card. Megan, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's worth between ten dollars and $15,000. But these are the trades that the people of God are making every day. We have the true and living God. And day in, day out, we go to our workplaces, we go to our homes, we go to the hallways of our school, and we're trading him for a cheap knockoff. We're trading him for a replica that holds up in front of us something that puts stars in our eyes and offers offers us something that we want so that we forfeit that which is of actual value. See, no one is like the Lord. No one is more proven than him. 
No one is more privileged. He, I love what God does through Micah. He takes Israel on a short history lesson. If you're a history buff, you're a history person like I am, this is awesome. He goes and he begins to say, he says, for, verse 4, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And what is he saying? He's saying, do you not remember Egypt? I am not a God who oppresses you. I am not a God who burdens you. I am a God who sets you free. Verse 5, he goes to another history lesson. Oh, my people, remember Balak, Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what? Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And he's, he's bringing into their mind the time that, that Balaam tried, just like what was happening in Judah, to pay off one of the prophets of God, that he would speak against the people of God. And what did God do? God put a, an angel, a warrior, right there, and the donkey, Balaam's donkey, would not go any further. Because why? God defends his people. He doesn't afflict them. God protects his people. He doesn't hurt them. God provides for his people. He doesn't deprive them. Keeps going. He says, then, he says, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of of the Lord. Do you remember what happened at Gilgal? He says, remember Gilgal. Gilgal is when they finally cross out of the wilderness. Forty years, generations had been awaiting the moment that they would come into the, the promised land. And there is the, the Jordan River flooded during the flood season. And God parts the Jordan River. And the people of God walk through. And there at Gilgal, they camp on the promised land. Received and enjoyed for the first time in generations. What is God saying? I am not people who, I am not a God who is the enemy of the happiness and joy of my people. I give them good gifts. I secure them in the land. I fulfill my promises. I am proven in my character. I am proven in how I treat you. I am proven in how I love you. Isn't it interesting? That those same three characteristics that he draws out there in the history of, Egypt, of, 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 of Judah. He draws out their, uh, their freedom. He draws out their security. And he draws out their joy. These are the same three fronts on which God is attacked by false idols even today. Even today. That what do you have? The, the, the God of, of personal freedom, he comes to you and he says, God's trying to hold you back. God wants to keep you old-fashioned. God wants to drown you in antiquated rules and draconian rituals. The God of false security, he comes to you and he says what? You know, God won't let you take care of yourself. God wants to keep you weak. God doesn't want you to love yourself. God doesn't want you to have what you need. He wants to make sure that you're not able to be any kind of challenge to him, that you're always dependent upon him. The God of of fleeting happiness comes to you and he says, God doesn't want you to enjoy your life. God wants to make life harder for you. God wants to give you all of these, these crazy ideas and these crazy structures and these crazy boundaries. God is trying to keep you from that which is good. God is trying to keep you from that which is enjoyable. Oh, but brothers and sisters, it's like when they used to use cowboys and cartoons to sell cigarettes. It's cancer camouflaged with a smile. Here it is, it's freedom, freedom being offered to you that actually, actually leads to oppression. Here it is, that security that's being given to you that actually creates greater insecurity. Is it any wonder, the more we look within, the more distressed we become. It's fleeting happiness, short-term happiness, camouflaging long-term misery. 
Oh, don't follow the idols. Don't trade for the replicas. They're lying to you. They're camouflaging death to you. God has been proven good. God has been proven faithful. Who is like God? No one. No one is more proven than him, and no one is more holy than him. You know, we're tempted to believe that we don't want a God that is holy. We're tempted to believe that we want a God that is more on our level, who's more like us. It seems less daunting to have a God that isn't truly transcendent and otherworldly and righteous and perfect. It, it seems, seems perhaps more approachable to have a God who's, who's something like us, that we can pacify with a few dollars here and there. That we can do a couple of good deeds and he's kind of back on our side and we'll let some good stuff happen to us because of the good things that we did. Oh, but the problem is, is they are like us. And they're up for sale. And as soon as they find someone that can offer them a better offering, they'll go and they'll, they'll abandon you for them. As soon as they can find someone that brings more to the table than you, they'll leave that nation for the new nation. This is how the gods worked in antiquity. As soon as they can find someone that they like better than you, they will jump ship on you and you will be left holding the bag wondering, where did this God go? Where did all the false promises go? More than one person has come to their middle ages wondering how in the world all of the promises they bought up through their early adulthood proved to be such lies. It's true, isn't it? It's true. But here is the Lord. Here is the Lord. And he's holy in character. He's righteous and perfect. Yes, he is transcendent. Yes, he is just. Yes, he is otherworldly. But he is utterly trustworthy because of it. And dependable. See, when the idols find a prettier woman, they'll leave you every time. When your job finds someone that can do your job better than you, they'll drop you like a bad habit. When your coach finds someone that can play better than you, they'll, you'll be sitting on the bench before you even know, no matter how many Saturdays and Sundays you've given up. But the Lord, when he tells you that he loves you now and will love you forever, you can depend upon it. You can trust it because he is holy. When God says that he will provide for you and he will protect you, you don't need a plan B. God will come through because he is holy. That the same reason that we can trust the reliability of the water cycle, the same reason that we can trust the constancy of gravity, the same reason we can depend upon the grace that has been a promise to us through Christ is because all of them find their source in a creator, in a maker, in a God who is holy and righteous and true. So he talks in Micah 6, 8 about what God requires. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And these requirements are that which flows from the very essence of who God is. Who is God other than one who does justice and treats everyone equitably on the same ground and loves kindness and shows his kindness to his people and to the nations and through common grace even to people that are not his people and who is God other than one who stoops down to dwell in the midst of his people that these requirements are not abstract and nebulous and picked at random and arbitrary they flow from the very nature of who God is. And so what God requires of his people, what his holy, holiness demands of his people, is that his people are like him. That his people emulate him. That's why these are requirements of him. But what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is that God does not require anything from you that he does not give first to you. 
that his holiness de demands your holiness. Oh, but his holiness drives and supplies your holiness. Why is it that any of us can do justice? We don't have to take advantage of other people. We don't have to make dollars over uh, on the backs of those that are beneath us. We don't have to go and treat people with dignity. Why? Because God has so richly given to us. Our holiness is driven by his supply. Why is it that we can love kindness? Now, who should love kindness more than the ones who have received kindness from the very throne room of God himself? Who should, who should love kindness more than those who have a fountain who is always filling their wells for them? His holiness drives our holiness. His supply drives our holiness. Why is it that we should walk humbly? Who is it that God stooped to love? Who is it that God mounted a cross to love? Who is it that God humbled himself of all dignity? Who is it that, uh, that God that humbled himself of all that he was owed and all that he was worthy of? That he might take upon himself my sins and yours. It is us. It is us. How can we be haughty? How can we walk as though we are superior or elitist? No, no, no. God has come for us. His holiness drives our holiness. His supply drives our holiness. You see, brothers and sisters, we keep trading in God for cheap replicas, but there's nobody like him. There's nobody like him. And brothers and sisters, you can keep running to the wells, and you can keep chasing after fleeting happiness, and you can keep chasing after false security, and you can keep looking within, and you can keep trying to, to find yourself in different relationships and different self-medications. And time and again, when you sober up, you'll be left destitute and abandoned. But the Lord, the Lord is proven and faithful, and he is dependable because he is holy. Oh, you don't want a God different than that. You don't want a God different than that. Are you like him? Are you like him? That's what Micah would have me ask you. Are you like him? One final answer to the same question. Who is like God? Jesus. There is one who is like God and it's his own son. It's his own son that God looks upon his people and he sees the, 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 the condition of his people and he recognizes they don't see him and they don't get it and they don't understand. So how does God respond? He ought to obliterate them, he ought to flatten them, he ought to get rid of them, he ought to abandon them, he ought to break the covenant the way they have broken the covenant, he ought to forsake them the way that they've forsaken him, but instead what does he do? He sends his son to them. He says, you don't know what I look like yet? You read my words and you read my love for you and you see my devotion for you and you hear the history of how I've been proven to be in your corner and you hear of my holiness and you still don't understand and you still don't see it? And so my people can see what I'm really like, I'll send my son. I'll send my son. And when they see my son, they will see me. When they see my son, they will know who I am. You see, Jesus embodied what God requires. T -t Turn with me to chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. This is one of the most famous passages from the book of Micah. And, and I want you to see exactly how explicitly Micah is expecting us to come up with the answer Jesus. Now, he didn't know the name Jesus. He would have thought Messiah. But the big story is starting to narrow. 
The big story is starting to clarify. He says, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. What is the defining characteristic of Bethlehem that Micah draws out? It's little. It's insignificant. Jesus is born as one who walks humbly. Jesus is who not just born to walk humbly, though. He is born to be a ruler in Israel. Completely different than chapter 2, chapter 3, current rulers of Judah. He's born to be a ruler who will be born from, the, from of old, from ancient of days. That is, from the line of David. To be a ruler like David, who is good to his people, who is fair with his people, who is generous with his people, who, who cares for his people. That is, he is one that is going to come and do justice. And what will this ruler accomplish? This humble, this humble son from the ancient of days, one who is from the line of David, but who is more ancient than David, who was born after David, but is yet still older than David. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell what? They shall dwell what? Not in false security, not, not in some hyped up stupor, but they shall dwell in actually security, actual security. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their what? Their peace. Their peace. Who is he? He's not just one who walks humbly. He's not just one who does justice. He's one who loves kindness. He loves to show kindness to his people. He loves to secure his people. He loves to make his people have peace. He loves his people to be able to walk in joy. That is, he embodied what God requires in its totality. You see, Jesus was not just born as an example of what God is like. Jesus was born at the same time as a substitute for you and me because we're nothing like him. See, in the requirements of God and within the holiness of God, there is, seems to be an apparent contradiction. How can the same God do justice and love kindness and walk humbly? How can the same God do that? You can't, you can't love kindness and forgive people and give them mercy and at the same time do justice. To do justice is to give people what they deserve. And what do sinners deserve? The wages of sin is death. Sinners deserve to be separated from God. You can't give them what they wrongly deserve without saying that he is unjust. And so there is this apparent contradiction. How can God let them know grace? How can God grant to them forgiveness? How can God give them mercy and at the same time remain one who does justice, remain one who punishes that which is wrong, remain one who executes his holiness by pouring out his wrath upon that which is in contradiction of how will he do it? My goodness, he resolves it within the same requirements by walking humbly among us. By walking humbly among us. He sent Jesus who was all of those things that we're not. And he took Jesus and he shows him as, as one who is actually holy, one who, who is actually just, one who actually loves kindness, one who actually walks humbly, one who, who characterizes in fullness what God is like and who God is. And he takes him and he sends them up to the cross. And what does he do to the one who deserves his fellowship? What does he do with the one who deserves his kindness? What does he do with the one who deserves his love? He pours upon him the wrath that was owed to me and the wrath that was owed to you because he is the one that embodied the fullness of what God required. So that now he can be justified 
in making us the offer of grace. He can still be just. His sin has been punished. It was poured upon his son. He can still be gracious because his son has paid for you and for me. Micah chapter 7, let's go back to where we started. Who is a God like you? Not us. No one. Jesus is. Jesus is though. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Because why? He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And he will cast our sins into the depths of the seas. On Rosh Hashanah every year, Orthodox Jews take and they read these verses. And you know what they do? They go up to the edge of a creek, the edge of a stream, the edge of a river, and they pull their pockets out. And the idea is that every year they go to the edge of the depths of the sea and they flush their sins. They cast their sins upon the Lord one more time. And y'all, they don't even know about Jesus. This morning, I wonder if all of us need to come to the altar. And if we need to empty out our pockets. Or if all of us need to come to the altar and look upon the risen Christ, the one that has been provided by the holiness and the kindness of God, and empty out our pockets and say, Lord, I am nothing like you, but I love you. And I want to be like you. And I want to follow you. And I want to pursue you for the rest of my life. This morning, would you come? Would you empty your pockets? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church. And we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.